know, you pays your money and you takes your choice. Okay, what are we thinking of the Aeneid? <laughs> no, you say. What are we thinking? No, I'm, I'm enjoying it, but it's uh, there's a lot of similarities to the. Uh... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we're we're going to talk a little bit more about Ovid, um, and then we're going to go into the Aeneid. But yeah, there are a lot of similarities in the. So basically, the Aeneid, the first half of the Aeneid is kind of Virgil channeling the Odyssey. And the second half of the Aeneid, books 7 through 12, is Virgil channeling the Iliad. Um, so what he's doing is he's writing, in a sense, a total or complete epic. Um, part of what he's doing, though, is um, thinking about putting an epic to um, a pretty different use from the use Homer um, does, but also learning from Homer the kinds of things that you really need to think about if you're going to be serious as a poet. Um, I think what it's worthwhile thinking about as you read through the Aeneid, the, the similarities are obvious. Does everyone agree? Uh, what are some of the similarities? Anyone? In the scene, in what we've read so far? He goes. Yeah, no, the, all right, speak. Speak. Start. Uh, the, the the two monsters, Ch Ch Charybdis and Charybdis and Scylla. And Scylla, yeah. Uh huh. They're there. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Good. They're there. What There's else? Mention of the Cyclops. Right? Mention of the Cyclops. What else? They pick up one of Odysseus's men. Okay. They pick up one of Odysseus's men. Nice. What else? He tells a story like in a court. Like, he ends up in, a in front of a palace. Yeah, what is that paralleling to the Odyssey? I mean, yeah, it's it's structurally um, almost the same, although done much more rapidly. That is, there's no telemachiad, as it's sometimes called in the Aeneid. Um, the telemachiad is what? I don't think I use the term, but what is it? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, the story of, Telema of Telemachus, which is, which really is the first three books of the Odyssey, is all focused on Telemachus. Odysseus doesn't even show um, until after that. Um, so Odysseus gets to, the first thing we find out about Odysseus is um, that he's shipwrecked and makes his way to um, the court of the Phaeacians. Who finds him first when he reaches land? No, 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 this is after... Daughter. Yeah, what's her name? Yeah, Nausicaa. Um, if you read Ulysses, that's actually the easiest chapter in Ulysses, is the Nausicaa chapter. Um, and um, what does um, Athena do for him as he makes his way to the court? Cloaks him in darkness. In darkness. Yeah, so what's the parallel in the Aeneid? <laughs> yeah, Aphrodite. So remember the great conflict um, among goddesses in Homer is the conflict between Aphrodite and Athena. Um, Hera also, um, but Hera is both more powerful and um, less immediately invested in things. But it's Athena um, who actually fights in the battle, and it's Athena versus Aphrodite. Um, so what Virgil is doing is in a sense, retelling um, some of the scenes, but now with Aeneas rather than Odysseus and with Aphrodite rather than Athena. 
um, doing the parallel scene. How long, by the way, have, um, when, when he begins his story, the first thing he says is, since the fall of Troy, it's been how long? Seven years. Yeah, he says we've been wandering seven years trying to get to our new home in Italy. Um, whereas Odysseus, the Ithacan, as he's sometimes called, is trying to get back to his old home in um, Ithaca. Um, the, uh, um, what does that mean about where Odysseus is when Aeneas is um, in Carthage? No, Calypso. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's he's on Calypso's island, um, and so uh, where we are, if you if you put the two of them together, if you do a kind of, um, well, they're actually Edith Hamilton and Robert Graves do this. That is, and Bullfinch does it. Uh, they're modern versions of Ovid, which is to say that they take the stories and put them together in a single narrative. Um, if you do that, you can keep track of where, where um, Homer says characters are at the same time that Virgil is dealing with his characters. And part of the point is Odysseus is doing all this primitive stuff on Calypso's island, and he's basically doing nothing, whereas Carthage is this amazing city being built um, where with industry and work everywhere, and here's Aeneas, and here are all his followers, and you can feel that in a sense what Virgil wants to do, this is a way of thinking about the difference, starting to think about the difference, which is going to be ultimately fairly tremendous um, between, the, uh, between Virgil and Homer, um, is that the Odyssey is a post-war um, return home and um, things now kind of fade away. The major events are done with when the Odyssey takes place. The Iliad is the major event of the two Homeric, I mean the Iliad, the fall of Troy, the Trojan War is the major event of Homeric um, epic. Um, Odysseus's return home is um, the aftermath of that. It's a fantastic story, but it's an aftermath story. Um, it's not a story, it doesn't have, and the whole point The whole point is that it doesn't have world historical significance. It's um, a petty head of a clan um, heading back to his petty island. Um, and that's the return home, the return to the domos, the home, the return to domesticity, whence the word, I mean, domos come, um, gives us the word domesticity. Um, while this is happening, um, Virgil says, all the world historical events have, have shifted away from the Achaeans, or as Virgil calls them, the Greeks, and to the Trojan exiles who are forming a new world. And so the explicit thing is the shift in world historical event is going from Homeric, the Homeric events to the Virgilian events. And that's one reason that he switches, you could say, um, the ordering of the two halves which constitute his parallels to the two Homeric <coughs> epithets um, so that the Odyssey occurs first. That is, the wanderings of Aeneas occur first, and then the Great War in Italy occurs second. It's the second half of the Aeneid. Um, 
And the second half of the Aeneid, therefore, means that we're moving towards the world historical, whereas in Homer, we've moved away from the world historical. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a connection to make also. It's also, I think, worth looking at the difference between um, the psychological um, account of, of people, especially people like Aeneas, but not only Aeneas, um, that Virgil gives versus Homer's psychological um, accounts of things. Virgil, um, in a sense, when he does similar scenes, he will almost always do them. No, I, I don't want to say that. That's too strong. He will frequently do them. This is worth noticing. Um, you who are looking for a paper topic, this is something you could think about. I guess I should say something about papers, um, trivial as though they are. Um, is he will frequently tell the same event from the other point of view. That is, um, especially and climactically, the event of supplication um, in battle. So you so this happens over and over again in the Iliad that someone supplicates and um, the supplication doesn't work. He supplicated him, but Diomedes um, took no notice but unstrung his sinews or, or whatever. Um, you will see um, supplication from the point of view of the supplicated the person the the person who has the advantage who chooses to kill or not to kill there is some of that in the Iliad that is when Achilles chooses not to kill Priam um, why because Priam reminds him of his father so it's not that this is an absolutely different thing but but Virgil is using Homer not simply to copy him which is a frequent um, accusation against against Virgil, um, and but not not um, an entirely fair one. He's using Homer to explore um, the Homeric um, idea of literature and to show how that idea can be revamped for a modern urban culture, um, and and that's really really important to see the difference. Um, between Virgil and Homer that way. Um, it's basically, it's generally the case that, um, that uh, people who care about such matters, and almost everyone we're going to read henceforth cares about such matters, that is to say, Dante um, and Milton, um, that people who care about such matters will either be um, partisans of Homer or partisans of Virgil. Um, that is, they up until now um, are regarded as the two great poets of the ancient world and often the two greatest poets who ever lived. Um, and usually um, people will, will come down on one of two sides. One is that um, Homer is absolutely the greatest and Virgil is an imitator of Homer's. That's what Dr. Johnson says. That's what many other people say. And the other is Virgil is absolutely the greatest poet who ever lived. Um, and Homer was a kind of precursor to Virgil, but he was ultimately too naive and too primitive to be quite as great as Virgil. Virgil was the person who put it all together. Um, the basic history of literary history is that Homer has pretty much um, 
been regarded as greater than Virgil for about the last 300 years or so. But until then, Virgil was pretty much regarded as the greatest poet who ever lived. Um, so this is a change in taste or a change in critical judgment. Um, but it's a change that's occurred fairly recently. Greek was not a language that, um, a, la a learned language or a language that scholars knew um, until around the 16th century. That's when Greek was, was um, kind of re-focused um, uh, on as a major language. Um, Petrarch, the second greatest of all Italian poets, um, didn't. one of the amazing things that he did was he collected a lot of Greek manuscripts, but he couldn't read them. He knew they were important. He revered the ancients, and any time a Greek manuscript um, was available from ancient days, he would get it, um, but he couldn't read Greek. Um, and it was um, one reason that um, was both cause and effect of um, the sense that Virgil was the greatest poet ever was really you only needed Virgil and Cicero. You didn't need Homer and Plato. Um, Cicero translated Plato or a lot of Plato into Latin and Virgil transmogrified Homer into Latin. It was the return of Greek um, and a return of familiarity with Greek um, that now seems to be fading away again, unfortunately, um, that made people start to see what was really going on in Homer. Um, in the 18th century, you have translators like Pope and Dryden, translators into English like Pope and Dryden, um, who both very interestingly begin by thinking that Virgil is the greater poet, but after um, translating both of them, come to the conclusion that Homer is. And that's a really interesting thing to, say, to see that judgment shifting in a poet. Julian. Well, how does, how did the language stay alive? Greek, just a couple of people held on to it? Yeah, I mean, no, there, there was there was certainly um, people who knew it and studied it, and Greek was itself a living language, although uh, one that was changing an enormous amount um, over the course of centuries. It's not like Hebrew, which is a reinvented language. Um, but it wasn't a language that was taught all over Europe. Um, the way Latin was. Latin was the language. Um, well, one thing, when we get to Milton, one thing that I should tell you is that Milton's work in Oliver Cromwell's government was, um, his job was what was called the Latin secretary um, for Oliver Cromwell, which sounds like, you know, some trivial office at Harvard, like the person who figures out how to write the degrees in Latin, but is in fact the equivalent of secretary of state. Um, the Latin secretary is the person who is responsible for foreign relations because all those foreign relations occur in Latin. Latin is the language of diplomacy. Latin is the language of science. Latin is the language of philosophy. So Greek is, yes, yeah, some people study it, but it's not a language that you simply learn. Um, I mean, it is by the time Milton is working, but its history is, um, and it's only really recovered in the 1500s as a learned language, but it's not a language. If you went to school, even if you had a good education, which almost no one did, um, before 1500, um, if you learned to read, anyone who could read could pretty much read Latin um, before 1500. To learn to read put you in a certain class, and that was a class of people who were going to learn to read and write Latin as well as their native languages. Um, and um, so anyone who could read could read Latin. Um, almost no one could read, but if you could read, you could read Latin. 
Um, but almost no one could read Greek. So this view of kind of um, hoity-toity English, English school teaching or French school teaching and so on, or Italian school teaching, um, that teaching was not teaching in Greek. Um, people did not learn Greek. Um, when, um, for various reasons, including Petrarch's um, reverence for the ancients, Greek came back, um, that's when people started being able to think about Homer um, in his own words. Uh, Chapman's translation of Homer is the one that Keats talks about. People know this. Keats's famous sonnet on first looking into Chapman's Homer, um, where Keats couldn't read either Latin or Greek. Um, and um, so he writes a sonnet about reading a translation of Homer and being stunned by how great it is. That, that translation is by Chapman. If any of you know Nabokov's Pale Fire, has anyone read that? Um, in Pale Fire, one of the things in the poem, um, that's a great book. You should definitely read it, even before you watch any more HBO. Um, in Pale Fire, uh, there's a poem by John Shade, and um, one line in the poem is um, a headline that his daughter has posted on her bulletin board, which was um, Yanks beat um, tigers on Chapman's Homer. Um, and uh, so there's this New York Times headline, which is either intentionally or unintentionally making a joke. Um, scholarship has actually determined that there was a Yankees player named Chapman who did um, hit three game-winning homers in his <laughs> career, um, but never against the Tigers. So um, uh, Nabokov was some, making some of it up and some of it not. Yeah. Um, I could be totally wrong, but I kind of thought that in the time of Virgil, Virgil was honestly writing, did they, did they, was the vernacular like not actually Latin? Did most people not actually speak Latin? Well, no, no, in Rome they did. Yeah, the vernacular elsewhere was not Latin. The vernacular was actually Greek. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, um, uh, are you thinking at all of Mel Gibson when you say that? Because Mel, because uh, the Passion of the Christ, the language in the Passion of the Christ is wrong. Um, <laughs> sorry? They speak Aramaic. Yeah, yeah, but in fact they would have spoken, they would have spoken what's called Koine, which is a dialect of Greek. Not in Rome. No. Um, no, it's, it's Latin was not, the, was not the language of the empire. Um, I mean, you know, maybe I'm just completely wrong about this, but I would be very surprised. But the, but, but the, the Rome itself, not the Roman Empire, where Latin was not the language of the Roman Empire, but Rome itself, um, and the Roman soldiers who came out of Rome, they did speak Latin. Um, they also spoke Greek. Um, I mean, there's a lot of Greek. Julius Caesar was supposedly, his last words were supposedly in Greek, not in Latin. Um, everyone, know, everyone thinks that what they are is et tu brute, because that's um, what Shakespeare says they are. Um, but if they were anything, which is very unlikely, um, that they were anything like this, but the real story is that he said, Kai su paide, and you, my child, in Greek, that those were his last words. In HBO's Rome, which I know none, none of you have ever seen, his last words are, get your hands off of me. Um, and that's actually a really neat moment in the HBO series of Rome, because you're waiting for the famous line, and their whole point is, no, we're going to make this realistic. Um, and there's no way that he produced this, you know, amazingly tear-jerky line. That's mythology. 
um, and meant to make people feel bad about the assassination. Um, famous last words are almost always inaccurate. Um, that's what makes them famous. They're so well chosen after the fact. Um, Oscar Wilde? Yeah, well, th th that was, yes. Th 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 he apparently said that about a week before he died. Right. Not Those weren't his last words, but <laughs> those are the last memorable words that he said. Either that wallpaper goes or I do. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, Goethe's last words, the famous last words, are more light, more light. But apparently what he really said was, little wife, give me your little paw. Um, which for me is much more moving, but I guess less sublime. Um, yeah, it's in German, so it's not, he didn't, it wasn't actually, you know, little wife. <laughs> um, it, it was Frauchen or something, or Weibchen, Weibchen. Um, Anyhow, yeah, look it up. You know, if I'm wrong, that would be really interesting. And I won't mislead future generations of Brandeis students. No, so, I mean, where did, do you, where did you hear that? Um, from my Latin teacher, but she's kind of crazy, so. <laughs> um, no, it's not the language of, it wasn't originally the language of the empire. Um, but the reason the Romance languages are all based on Latin is um, that it was the language that then that became widespread and brought by Roman soldiers. And you can actually, I, I guess I should say something about this also. You can trace um, through linguist, a kind of linguistic archaeology, um, you can trace the spread of, um, of the Roman um, armies. And... Um, Probably, I believe that the language which is closest um, to the Latin that was spoken around the second century, that's still spoken in the world, is um, uh, Catalan. Um, so, but if you look at, you know that Spain is, is there's Spanish and then there are languages that are kind of like Spanish but not like um, Basque and Catalan, um, those, are, you, those are because there were different Roman camps. And those languages spread out from these different Roman camps and different Roman fortifications and, and administrative units. And, um, the more I, and, and Basque and Catalan were much more isolated than what was going on in other parts of Spain. So there was a lot of intermixing of languages, um, like in Madrid and so on. But in um, Barcelona and um, in uh, northeastern Spain, um, the, the uh, cultures were much more isolated. And the language, therefore, um, it, there's a much more direct line to the Latin, the, the kind of Latin soldiers were speaking. Um, but, you know, Romanian, um, French, Spanish, Italian, um, all of them derive French. They all derive from Latin in different ways. Um, some of you know what Languedoc is, um, you know, that that's the name of a region. Uh, we may talk about this when we get to Dante. Is this a familiar phrase to you, Languedoc? No? no. To, okay. What that literally means is language where they say "ock." Um, it's the place where people say ok. Um, and um, ok is the way they say yes in that region. Whereas there's another region called Langdoi, which is where they say oi to say yes. Um, now France would be the Langdoi, um, because they say we to say yes. Um, but, but language and geography go together, and the history of um, 
political history and linguistic history go together um, in a very interesting way. Another thing, though, just to say is that what Virgil is describing is the coming of the Trojans to Italy. And for a really long time, this was thought to be pure myth. Um, however, recent genetic study of the cattle in southern Italy shows that they're most, more closely related to Turkish cattle than to cattle in northern Italy, um, which is to say that, um, that there actually is their genetic reasons for thinking um, that, in fact, there was um, a migration of people from Anatolia, where Troy was, to southern Italy um, in the way that the Aeneid is describing. It's Virgil, Virgil is using older traditions which claim that the Trojans came to Italy and founded it. And there is some evidence that um, Anatolians who had been in the destroyed city, who, who were the same people as those in the destroyed city of Troy, did in fact come to Italy. So it's um, a lot of these stories turn out to have more of a basis in truth than was assumed until the 20th century. Um, Byron, Lord Byron in, um, in Don Juan talks about going to see um, Marathon and going to see um, uh, the plains of Troy. And at one point he says, and, and he goes to see Rome, which is a bustling city, and he says, I've heard, and he talks about how time destroys everything, and he says, I've heard Troy doubted, time will doubt of Rome. So Byron um, is a believer in Troy when no one else um, is, and he says, people don't think Troy exists, there will come a time when people won't believe that Rome exists either. Um, and that's what time does to things. But but some but it turns out that some that a lot of these stories have a basis in some kind of fact. Um, and it's only recent um, scientific um, approaches that have shown that. Okay, I wanted us to look. Let's go back to Ovid for a little while. Um, oh, I promised to say something about your papers. You have paper due um, a week from Friday. And um, I don't really get paper topics, as some of you know, but if you're anxious for a paper topic, um, and I certainly don't write them out. Um, so let me, just, uh, let me just say this about papers. You're taking these quizzes. The quizzes are showing that you are or are not, as the case may be, doing the reading. Um, papers are not for you to show that you've done the reading or that you've paid <laughs> attention in class. Um, it helps for papers for you to have done the reading, and it helps for you to have paid attention in class, but that's, they're not demonstrations of that. Papers are um, things that you want to say that you think that um, it would be really interesting, even important, for your reader to come to understand about what you're um, writing about, about your topic. So the main thing about a topic is that you want um, to have something that you, that, that it actually matters to you to say. Um, probably um, you will be most certain of having something that it matters to you to say um, if you think that you want to disagree with anything that I'm saying um, that seems of any importance. 
Um, because if you're disagreeing, then you know what resistance you have to meet and overcome. Um, the general experience that human beings have of arguing with each other is they um, understand that they have to explain to this other person why they're wrong, um, and they think they can explain it. Um, that's a, that's what um, the sort of thing that happens just every day when you're um, when you're sulking and um, you start expressing for yourself all the reasons that you're right and that person is wrong and how even they would have to see it um, if, if um, you could just tell them um, why they were wrong. So I don't mean to that you should write sulky papers. You shouldn't. Um, we get enough of those. Um, but what you should be doing is um, feeling that that that, that um, something that you have to say won't be obvious to your reader until you say it, and then when you do say it, your reader will change their mind. And as I say, the easiest way to do that in any course is if you disagree with the teacher. Um, because disagreeing with the teacher, you know what the teacher thinks, and you know what you would have to say um, in order to, or at least you feel like, um, like if you only say this, then your teacher won't possibly be able to believe that that idea any longer. That's the general view. I'm not saying that that you now have to search your notes for something that you disagree with. I'm just saying if that happened and if it mattered to you at all, um, that would be great. Um, but more generally, the idea is that you want to notice something that you didn't notice at first in your reading and that you now want other people to notice. That's a more general thing to say about writing humanities papers. That is, that you yourself saw something, had an aha moment, realized that things were not the way um, you thought they were, put something together. Um, you yourself realized that, and the fact that you came to that conclusion, that your own experience was to come to that conclusion, um, the fact that you came to that conclusion will tell you that others also might be brought to seeing something that they might not necessarily see. So you might say, wait a second. Um, why is he talking about Kaiser Sosek at all? Um, it must be that. Um, so it's a moment when you have a realization, and the realization is an interesting one. And again, we've all experienced this. That is, you go see a movie with someone, and suddenly, after the movie, you realize something about it, and you turn to the person you've seen it with and said, you know what? I think she really did kill him. Um, and the person says, wait a second, what are you talking about? And then they say, oh, and then you explain why. And they say, oh, gosh, I didn't think of that. So that experience, which is always good to have when you make someone see something that you've seen, um, that's what you should be doing in papers. Of course, the insulting thing people always do is they say, yeah, of course she did. Um, but the, the idea, again, is, is if you see something, say something. If you see something and, you, and um, the moment that you see it, um, you realize that some that um, uh, you know you've you've suddenly you've suddenly um, seen Waldo in the picture, 
then you realize that, well, other people um, won't. But there he is. See? There he is. There it is. Um, then you can be aware that your reader might not have seen it and can be brought to see it. So that's the general rule um, about writing humanities papers. Um, don't do research. Um, but more explicitly, one thing that you could talk about um, is a comparison and contrast between Virgil and Homer. Um, and again, I would say that the contrast is more interesting than the comparison. Um, it's not, it won't be an interesting paper to say Homer does this and now Virgil just does the same thing. Um, isn't that interesting? Thus we see that Virgil was thinking of Homer. Um, I already know that Virgil was thinking of Homer. Everyone in this class already knows that Virgil was thinking of Homer. You don't have to prove that Virgil was thinking of Homer. Um, so, but it would be much better to say these two scenes look like they're very similar to each other, but in fact, what Virgil is doing is and then don't just say showing the scene from the other point of view, because I've said that, unless you have something interesting to say about that. But, you know, Virgil is doing this to, the, to his Homeric original. Or you could say it, it might look like these two scenes are very similar, but in fact, Homer is much deeper. Virgil is missing Homer's point. So look at what Virgil does, and that'll bring out what he leaves out in Homer. Um, just to say this, the best single edition of Paradise Lost is a famous 18th century edition by, a, actually by a classic scholar named Gerard Bentley. Um, I'm sorry, Richard Bentley. Gerard Bentley is a Shakespeare person. Uh, Richard Bentley. And Bentley's edition of Paradise Lost is um, a famously horrible edition. Um, he is constantly saying, Milton couldn't have said this. This must be a misprint, or it must be that his daughters, when he dictated it, because he was blind and dictating, misheard what he was saying because he couldn't mean this. It's too outrageous. And the thing is, Bentley is so sensitive to every single place where Milton says something surprising, because every single time he says he couldn't have meant it, that if Bentley says, oh, look at that, Milton couldn't have meant it, Bentley is almost always onto something, trying to sweep it under the rug, but the very thing that he's sweeping un under the rug is interesting. So Bentley's edition of Paradise Lost, that is an incredibly helpful edition, because you might be reading something and not notice that it's interesting, but Bentley will then put in his margin, that has to be wrong, and you'll look back at it and you'll say, oh, wow, that is so good. Um, no wonder <laughs> Bentley's against it. He's, he's a perfect reverse barometer. If you find a scene in Virgil like that with respect to Homer or in Ovid or in anyone, that is a scene where um, the later person screws up what's going on in Homer. Um, and if that can then show you something about Homer that Virgil missed or that Virgil was trying to um, not repeat because it went against his general tendency. I mean, I don't have anything in mind. I'm saying, I'm saying if you contrast, the, contra the contrast can be one where it's Homer who comes out 
um, ahead, not just, not only one where it's Virgil who comes out ahead. Not, it doesn't have to be a contrast where Virgil sees a moment in Homer. One of the ones that uh, we'll talk about, that we did talk about a little bit and will talk about, is Ajax's silence, Aeos's silence in um, when Odysseus speaks to him in Book 11 of the Odyssey. That gets repeated in a Virgilian way in Book 6 of the Aeneid. Um, Many people think that Virgil's version is better, but some people think that Homer's version is better. Um, they're different, and those who think Homer's version is better say, look at Virgil and the part that he leaves out, that's what makes Homer great. The part that Virgil can't do, that's what makes Homer great. Um, and so, again, you can use one as a control, as we scientists say, for what's going on in the other. Emily. Do you want us to shy away from Plato? No. No. The, another possibility, I was about to say, is Plato's relation to Homer. Um, and, you know, one thing that Plato does um, is he has Socrates quoting Homer all the time. Um, even though he has this suspicion that we talked about of the poets. He still has Socrates quoting Homer all the time. Why is that? And in particular, if you want um, to think about this, um, why is it, we, we just mentioned this at the end of class last time, but why, at, why in um, the parable of the cave does Socrates um, allude to Book 11 <coughs> of the Odyssey? Um, why does he allude to what Achilles has to say in Book 11 of the Odyssey? Um, how, how apt an allusion is that? Um, allusion with an A. How apt is that allusion? How apt are any of the Socratic allusions to, or the Platonic allusions to Homer? Um, look at what Plato, look at what Socrates says and look at the context from which he's quoting um, and see whether that's really just, oh yeah, to be or not to be, that really is the question, or whether um, there's something sneaky or fishy or interesting um, about what Plato is doing. Is Plato saying, here's what Homer says, and here's how I'm going to give you a completely different context for what Homer is saying. Obviously, the second is a much more interesting um, idea than the first. Um, so, the, but these are, you know, write about as long as it's about stuff that we've read. Um, just write about something interesting. Um, but those are the kinds of um, things that I think are very fertile for um, for ideas and for for um, papers. Um, and that gives you some idea of, of, well, I mean, the whole course should give you some idea of what we're talking about. Um, other questions about that? Okay, let's go back to, what I wanted to do was um, uh, look at, just so you know, the death, because um, we there's so much of it we didn't read, and you should read it all, but the death of Achilles, which is, if you have... Um, the, this edition, the Charles Martin edition of the Metamorphosis, it's on page 432. Um, as, I, as I said before, what the Metamorphosis is, um, is the uh, Ovid putting all the myths he knows together. Um, 
And um, so here is um, a, a transitioner morphing into another story, um, which is that that Poseidon or Neptune um, feels um, sorrow for the death of one son, Sickness, who had been, um, or Kuknos, I guess it's um, Kyknos, who had been changed into a swan, um, and he also laments the death of Phaethon. And so he exercised, this is at line 852, he exercised his unremitting wrath on man slaying Achilles, whom he hated. War had been waged for almost 10 years now, so this is near the end of the Trojan War, and Neptune urged Apollo's intervention. If you don't have the book, just listen. Um, oh, most obliging of my brother's sons, with whom I built Troy's ineffectual walls, says Neptune to Apollo. Do you not groan at sight of that citadel so soon to fall? And do you not lament for the many thousands slain defending it? And of those many whom I will not speak of, does not the shade of Hector rise from below, his corpse appearing just as when Achilles shamefully dragged him round the Trojan walls. Um, that doesn't come straight from the Iliad. Um, how do we know? We read the Iliad. Yeah, okay, good. And having read the Iliad, we say to ourselves, but wait, in the Iliad, Achilles... Yes, dragged, drags Hector around Patroclus's pyre, not around the Trojan walls. But both Virgil and Ovid describe a story where Hector is dragged around the walls of Troy, which strongly suggests that there's another story. And possibly, that is, that there's another tradition that comes down. Um, and there are. There are many traditions, many of which we only have fragments of. Um, but that also suggests the possibility that Homer changes the story, that the standard story is one where Hector is dragged around the walls, that Homer wanted Hector dragged around Patroclus's pyre, but he also had to deal with the circling of Troy's walls, so he has the chase occur around the walls of Troy. Um, that is, that Achilles chases Hector three times around the walls of Troy, but then drags his body around the pyre of Patroclus. Yeah? Well, doesn't he just think about the second character of Achilles, who his motivation is to cause pain to the Trojans, and Achilles' motivation is to kill Patroclus, how much he loves him? Yes, good. And so, yes, very nice. So that, um, but what he does is he has, he has, he tells two different stories of Achilles and Hector. Um, and one occurs around the walls of Troy, but it's not dragging, and the other occurs around the pyre. The other is dragging, but occurs around the pyre of Patroclus. Um, both Virgil and Ovid, um, Virgil is explicitly um, in Homer's mode, but he seems to have forgotten that. Um, that is to say, the story is one that he knows so well that he forgets that's not how Homer tells the story. Um, Ovid may not be alluding to Homer at all here. Um, but what he says is, so Neptune is saying to Apollo, um, there his corpse appears, the shade of Hector, just as when Achilles shamefully dragged him around the Trojan walls. 
but he who has a greater thirst for blood than even Mars himself, the pillager of our handiwork, Achilles, he still lives. Give him to me, and I will make him feel what I can do with my three-pronged spear, that is, Neptune's trident. But since I'm not permitted to engage my enemy in combat hand-to-hand, -hand, because he's the god of the sea, the task is yours. Slay him with an arrow unseen and unexpected. Now remember, Apollo is more or less on Achilles' side in the Iliad, um, against the Achaeans, but for Achilles. But now um, it's Apollo and Neptune who are going to go against Achilles. So Apollo, agreeing with his uncle, gave assent. His uncle, because um, Neptune is Jove's, that is, Poseidon is Zeus's brother. So Apollo, agreeing with his uncle, gave assent, and in a cloud came to the Trojan front, where in the midst of slaughter he discerned Paris, lackadaisically shooting his arrows at anonymous Achaeans. <laughs> Revealing his divinity to him, Apollo said, why do you waste your barbs on nobodies? If you have any care for your own people, take aim at Achilles, and so avenge the sla his slaughter of your brothers. And with these words, he showed him where Achilles was devastating Trojans with his spear and made him turn his bow in that direction. And with his own death-dealing hand, he guided that certain arrow to its fated target. Not since the death of Hector had old Priam a cause for celebration. Now he had that you, Achilles, conqueror of many, are overcome by an unheroic adulterer who snatched a Grecian's wife. Better that you were slain in battle by an Amazon wielding her double axe. Now, he who was the terror of the Trojans, the glory and protector of the Greeks, invincible Achilles, has been burned upon the pyre. One god in the same armed this great hero and consumed him quite. That is Apollo. Now he is ashes, and the little left of great Achilles scarcely fills an urn although his living glory fills the world. So the memory of Achilles fills the world, though his ashes scarcely fill an urn. That glory is the measure of the man, and it is this that is Achilles' essence. Nor does he feel the emptiness of death. His very shield, remember that, that you should be aware whose it once was, now instigates a battle. So here is the battle between whom? Remember? Yes, and for his arms, arms are now taken up. None of the lesser leaders, such as Ajax, the son of Oileos, or Diomedes, or Menelaus, dares to lay a claim, nor any of the other leaders more distinguished for their age and experience. Only Ajax, the son of Telamon, and Ulysses are bold enough to do so. Now Agamemnon, to spare himself the thankless burden of deciding on this issue, ordered the Argive leaders to assemble in the middle of the camp and hear the case and come to a decision by themselves. And then you're going to get, in book, four, in book 13 of Ovid, you then get that battle. So notice that Ovid is filling in a whole lot of these stories. But of course, the important one is that Paris kills Achilles, um, guided by Apollo. Um, yeah. Um, the term Amazon, uh, it's in that translation you just read, how, how can that be accurate? How, well, can you, wouldn't that be anachronistic? Amazons, where do they come from? Do they come from well, South? Amazon in South America was named after the Amazon Greek. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. She 
Yeah. Isn't she a goddess, a warrior goddess? Well, she's a warrior, but not a goddess. So the Amazons, the story of the Amazons um, was that they were, uh, this is actually a little bit confusing, but the story of the Amazons were um, that they were a martial um, uh, clan or group or army or society of women. And the standard story, Herodotus tells it, um, is that Amazons would go and conquer a city and rape the men, and um, they would kill any male children they had and raise the female children to be warriors, and that's how they sustained themselves. Um, yeah? Um, the word Amazon might or might not mean breastless, that is, there's a story, but it doesn't actually seem to be a story that anyone believed, that in order to be, in order to fight better, um, they would amputate their own breasts, usually at puberty, so that the, their breasts wouldn't get in the way of their archery. Um, but there doesn't actually seem to be evidence of this. This, this seems to be, um, and there's certainly no, there, there's no, there are no pictures of Amazons that show them that way. Um, there are lots of vase paintings and other other pictorial representations of Amazons. Um, they're never shown this way, so this is just probably um, kind of male anxiety um, speaking among some some figures. The Amazons were actually allies of the Trojans in some of the traditions against the Greeks, um, but um, they're they they were they're a sort of fascinating probably at least semi-mythological um, group, but they were warrior women. Yeah. The thing with anachronism, I was thinking about how, you know, the fields of corn? Yeah, it's, a, it's British corn. What, what's British corn? Wheat. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the corn laws, um, that, that, which are really important in England, that having to do with the taxing of grain. Corn is an old word. Like apple mean, really means fruit. You know, it's not supposedly not an apple that um, Heath plucked. Um, some people say a pomegranate. Some people say an estrog. Um, but it's uh, apple just means fruit. Hence, pineapple um, and so on just means means the fruit of the pineapple tree. Um, apple comes to mean what we call an apple much later. Um, same is true with corn. Corn means grain. Um, so to quote Keats again. Um, he has um, in Ode to a Nightingale he talks about how the nightingale is s perhaps singing the same song that through that found its way through the sad heart of Ruth when dim with tears she stood among the alien corn um, and so it's, it's Ruth as a gleaner, but what she's gleaning is what we would now call wheat. It's just grain. It's a generic word for grain. Um, so, um, yeah. Okay, let's go back to the story of Narcissus, which I really wanted us to look at. Um, and then I hope we'll have a little bit more time on Virgil uh, for today, but we have two more classes on Virgil after today. So just to tell you, you should be through book eight, um, for Friday and um, th and finish it by a and you should have finished the Aeneid by a week from today. Um, so go to page 103. This is book three of um, 
the metamorphoses. I, I did say to bring it. Um, which is uh, the story of Tiresias, and then that leads into the story of Echo and Narcissus, um, which of all the really important stories in um, the Metamorphoses is one of the really important stories in the Metamorphoses. What else can I say? Um, and um, it begins, uh, do you know, page 103. Um, it begins, uh, this is around line 408 of book three. Um, it begins with an account of Tiresias, um, which it's worthwhile, again, juxtaposing to Aristophanes' account of the sexes in the symposium. Meanwhile, they say that in heaven, Jove had put aside his weighty cares, and Drinking Hand was busy killing time and repartee with Juno. Women get more pleasure out of sex than men do, he said. And when she denied this, they both agreed to seek the arbitration <coughs> of the transsexual sage Tiresias, who in a leafy forest had once profaned the coupling of two enormous serpents by giving them a blow with his walking stick. So he's walking um, and he can see and there are two serpents coupling and he hits them. And what happens to him? A wonder, for at once he was transformed into a woman and remained as such for seven years but when the eighth year came, he saw the same two serpents once again and said, since striking you is the effect of turning one into one's opposite, I'll strike you once again. And having done so, became the image of his former self. So he sees these two serpents he hit, um, who are having sex. Um, he hits them, turns into a woman, sees them again eight years later, hits them again, and turns into a man. Serpents are really important, you may have noticed, in everything that we're reading. They're very creepy snakes. Um, and uh, they're also important in Genesis. Um, they're phallic, let's just say. Um, there's, there's always something strangely phallic about them, and they're used as phallic symbols. Um, so, And here, there's some obvious way that they're being used as a phallic symbol. The idea that serpents would um, couple is um, a strange one if you have very naive ideas about sex um, and symbolism. So he turns into a woman, he turns into a man, and now he knows the experience of both men and women. So he's the right person to ask, having been both. Um, so the sage agreed to settle their dispute, a trifling one, or so he must have thought, when he agreed with Joe. Um, that is, he agrees that women get more pleasure than men. Um, so that's an interesting debate for various reasons, one of them being that it's almost impossible to adjudicate um, because any judge is going to have experience only of one and not of the other um, of the two things being compared, women's sexual pleasure versus men's sexual pleasure. Yeah. yeah it, well, exactly. Um, that is that what you, that you have to... Um, in heterosexual sex, you have to um, take on faith. Now, this is true of actually all human relations, but heterosexual sex is a particularly vivid image of a fact that's true of all human relations to each other, which is that you have to take on faith that the experience of the other person is something that even though you can't know it, you can know about 
you can um, share with them, not by actually knowing what they feel, but by trusting what they say about what they feel. And um, sexual difference is the most vivid example of this human relationship, but it's in fact a universal human relationship. Every person differs from everyone around them in the sense that no person um, has an experience, has a visual experience. Well, every person, this is what Ernst Mach says, um, the visual experience of every person is to be a body without a head. Um, and so here you are in a room with um, 28 people, but only 27 of them have heads. And then there's you, this strange headless thing um, with this body and its peripheral vision. Um, and most of the time we don't think about that. You can creep yourself out if you do. Um, and it's an interesting way to creep yourself out. Um, Mach actually has a great um, self-portrait of the body without a head. Um, eh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll bring it in. Um, but it's, uh, it's what the world looks like out of his left eye. Um, and it's really creepy uh, what the world looks like out of his left eye. It's like the only totally real self-portrait ever done um, without a mirror. Um, but so that fact that you are headless and, every, and no one else is, that you're inside your head and everyone else you only see from outside, um, that's a general fact about, human, about humans' relations to each other. Um, but it's most obvious and vivid and most um, easy to think about when you talk about um, heterosexual sexual experience, where in heterosexual sexual experience, you know for a fact that this thing that you're doing with someone else, they're not experiencing it the way you are. Um, and that's what's going on between Jove and Juno. But Tiresias is the one person who can match those two things up, the two serpents who are coupling, two phallic symbols, so they're both male, and yet they're coupling heterosexually, so both things are possible simultaneously. Um, that's why the thing that um, causes him this knowledge is this image of two serpents coupling. Um, and then that's going to lead into further um, ideas of repetition with a difference, we can call it. Um, repetition with a difference is the other person um, is and is not like you, is and is not having your experience, is and is not parallel to you. So there's Jove and Juno whose sexual experience is and is not parallel to each other's. They're the two serpents whose sexual experience seems perfectly parallel to each other from the outside. And then there's Tiresias who is able to um, um, understand the um, comparison between these two sexual experiences. Um, so he says, Jove is right. Um, women have much more pleasure, but Saturn's daughter reacted badly when he gave his judgment, and many thought her anger was excessive when, for an issue of no great importance, she damned Tiresias to eternal blindness. Um, but one god can't undo another's doing, so she does it, and um, the gods can't revoke their gifts, as Tennyson's um, Tithonus is going to lament. 
And so Jove gave Tiresias the gift of foresight to replace the vision lost. So we already talked about that in Paradise Lost, that um, Milton is um, equaled with Homer and with Tiresias in his fate, which is not to be able to see with physical eyes, but he hopes for the same kind of compensation that they have, which is to have prophetic vision. For Tiresias, it's foresight. He was soon held tempering punishment. Jove tempers his punishment with a high esteem he was soon held in throughout all Boeotia. Do you remember why it's called Boeotia? Anyone? All right, it's earlier in it's early in book one. We find out where it gets that name. Um, for the un, but Tiresias is held um, in high esteem for the unerring answers that he gave to those who came to him and sought his counsel. First to consult him was Lyriope, the sky blue nymph who had been ravished by the river god Cephisus when he snared her between his winding banks. She bore a child who even as an infant was adorable and whom she called Narcissus. Um, you would think that would be a weird name to name your child, but she didn't know. This is the first Narcissus. When she asked whether her son would live to ripe old age, Tiresias responded with these words. If he knows himself not. Um, that's a slightly awkward translation, but it's essentially um, not if he knows himself, um, and, um, and if he knows himself, he won't, but if he doesn't know himself, he will. Um, if he knows himself not. For a long time, that prophecy appeared completely groundless until the boy's unusual obsession which took his life, proved the foretelling true. And here's now the story of Echo and Narcissus. Narcissus at 16 seemed to be both boy and man, and many boys and women desired him, but in his yielding beauty was such inflexibility and pride that no young man or woman ever moved him. So what this has to do with self-knowledge is the first question you should ask. Why is his indifference to the sexual charms of anyone else um, and put into the context of his not having self-knowledge? Um, so the question you can ask, we, we I don't think we'll answer it here, but the question you can start asking is, what does sex have to do with self-knowledge? Um, that's a question that's already raised by Tiresias's changing sex and his blindness and his foresight in those things, all three of those things put together. What does sex have to do with self-knowledge? Um, but he's fine because he's uninterested in either boy or woman. No young man or woman ever moved him. Once, as he drove the trembling deer to his nets, he's a hunter, once, as he drove the trembling deer to his nets, resounding echo sighted him, a nymph unable to keep still when someone spoke or speak at all before another did. Now we're going to hear a little bit about how echo got to be echo. So here's another metamorphic story. Until this time, echo had a body. So even if you know the story of Echo, you may not realize that Echo was an Echo with a body. Um, she was a real person. Um, she couldn't speak on her own, but she um, wasn't simply a voice. But at the time of the story of Narcissus, she had a body. Until this time, Echo had a body. 
the voluble, just what I said, she wasn't just a voice, as she is now, although she used her voice no oftener than she does now, repeating just the last words of any speech she heard. Juno had done this to her, of course, for whenever Saturn's daughter was poised to apprehend Jove in his dalliance with a mountain nymph, Echo, who knew full well what she was doing, detained the goddess with a long recital of idle chatter while the nymphs escaped. But Juno, Juno figured out what she was up to. Once too often has your tongue beguiled me, from now on you'll have little use for it. And that is why Echo skips now to the end of any speech she hears and then repeats it. So one day Narcissus happened to be roaming the countryside when Echo happened by, and at the very sight of him grew hot. She secretly pursued him through the woods, her heat increasing as she overtook him, as torches smeared with highly flammable sulfur ignite themselves brought near a flame. Often she wanted to come onto him, accost him with endearments, tender prayers, but her nature won't permit such forwardness. Advances are denied her, though she may repeat in her own voice a sound she hears. So she wants Narcissus, but she can't have him because she can't even tell him what she wants. That day, he was cut off from his companions and called out, Anyone here? What do you think she answered? Here! here. Good. Anyone here? Here! 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 Answered Echo. Narcissus searches all around, astounded, cries out more loudly, Come! His cry returns. He turns around, but there's no one approaching. Why do you run away from me? He asks, and the very same words are given back to him. So everything he says are given back to him. Why do you run away from me? Why do you run away from me? Come, he cries. Come, she cries back. Why do you run away from me? You, why do you run away from me? He halts, astounded by that other voice. Here, let us come together, he cries out. And Echo gave her heart with her reply. Come together. <laughs> now, you're sort of not even laughing, although you're realizing that there's the possibility of a laugh here, but you think it's too stupid? Come <laughs> together. Um... Come doesn't mean come, just this is scholarship for you again. Come doesn't mean come probably until around the um, late 17th century in English. Um, there's, a, there's a misinterpreted line. Actually, there's, a, there's an important Shakespeare scholar who didn't know this. Um, but there's a moment where Cleopatra, and Cleopatra says, husband, I come. And she says, ooh. Um, but she's wrong. Um, it, the slang meaning of come um, is late 17th century. Um, so this, so what Martin is doing when he has Echo say, come together, um, that's a possible 20th century translation. But what would it be a translation of? And the very idea of coming, I don't think it's um, the same word in other languages. Um, I think that's, a, that's English uh, slang, an English vulgarism, but it's not a translation of similar, I mean, it, 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 it's not an isomorphic translation of a similar vulgarism in other languages. Yeah. It could be, in a lot of other languages, it could be finished or done. Yeah. Yeah. And it is in Hebrew and in, in Russian. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Um, so, um, the point, however, is that 
is that it's not the case that Narcissa says, um, let us come together. Um, what he, the, uh, probably a better translation of what he says is let us meet. Um, come together is okay for that, um, but let us meet. The Latin word that he uses is, um, has, have you taken Latin? Yes, you had a crazy Latin teacher. Do you know how to say go in Latin? Does anyone? Um, the first person singular is ao, and it's an irregular um, verb, but it's, um, I'm trying to think if there's a, um, yes, the word exit. It's an irregular verb. It's ao ire. If you know, has anyone taken any Latin? You know that when you're given verbs, um, you're given the first person singular and then you're given the infinitive. Usually the infinitive is obvious from the first person singular, like amo amare, um, but with irregular verbs it isn't. So it's ao is I go, but the infinitive is ire, and um, he goes or she goes is simply the word it. Exit literally means it goes out. This is the place to go out. Exit here means um, go out here. Um, ex ao, go out. So the word to go is ao ire. Um, what Narcissus says to echo is let us go together. That is, let us go to a place where we can meet together. Let us, um, or let us walk together. Um, let, it, let us travel together. Um, koyamas. Um, we have in English a word that is formed from the fourth principle part of um, go together, um, which is it's coire, to go together. The fourth principle part, which is the past participle, means um, those who have gone together or having gone together is how you would translate that into English. Um, in the same way that, that um, broken is the past participle of break, um, gone together is the past participle of go together. Though when two have gone together, what you would say that, that um, or when a person has gone together with another person, what he has done is that. Um, and that means the same thing in Latin as it does in English. Um, so when Narcissus says, let us go together, um, koeamus, let us go together. Um, Echo's response is um, in Latin, yes, let's have sex. Um, that is the repetition. That's Ovid's joke there. That's the point of this, that the repetition is indeed, let us have sex, koeamus. Um, so the basically, um, Martin is trying to get that out of, here, let us come together. Um, and her reply is, let us come together. Um, but he didn't quite have the guts to put the let us in it. Um, he didn't want to make it that obvious, but he should have. Um, that would have been a little bit better. Let us come together, indeed. Um, and so she leapt out of the woods, eager to give her words a little help by swiftly embracing the desired neck. He, flee, he flees and fleeing cries, hands off, no hugs. I'll die before you'll have your way with me. You'll have your way with me, Echo replied. Um, maybe a little bit better would be, have your way with me. 
Um, Echo replied. Spurn, shamefaced, she slipped into the woods and hid herself living alone in caves from that time on, and yet her love endured increased even by feeding on her sorrow. That's psychologically pretty good. That is that love feeds on sorrow. Again, you could think of the um, legend of love given in the symposium, um, who is love the child of, do you remember? Poverty. And? Well, yeah, poverty and plenty. Um, love, is the, love is the child of both. So that's sort of what you're getting here. And yet her love endured, increased even by feeding on her sorrow. Unsleeping grief wasted her sad body, reducing her to dried out skin and bones, then voice and bones only. Her skeleton turned, they say, into stone. Now only voices left of her on wooded mountainsides, unseen by any, although heard by all, for only the sound that lived in her lives on. So one reason that you hear echo in stony or rocky places is it's the skeleton of echo, but her voice lives on. So here is one story of, par of parallel with a difference. Echo mirrors acoustically what Narcissus says. She parallels him because that's all she can do, but everything she says is also different from what he said. Um, she twists his words um, by only saying the last of them. So it's parallel with the difference, which is one way of representing um, the uh, sexual difference, the sexual difference between two people. Um, parallel, but different. Um, again, heterosexuality is the most vivid instance of this, um, but only um, iconographically. Um, it's simply a fact of all human relation. Now, as for Narcissus, he trifled with her and so many others, water nymphs, nymphs of the wooded mountains, as well as a host of male admirers. One of these, those spurned, raised his hands to heaven. May he himself love as I have loved him, he said, without obtaining his beloved. And Nemesis assented to his prayer. So notice now that what you have is a young man in love with Narcissus, and Narcissus doesn't respond. This young man is sort of like in Echo's position, and again, in a parallel with a difference, it's Narcissus whose story will now be told and not the young man's. So we have one story of pining away, Echo's. Now again, we have a parallel with a difference, a young man who likes Narcissus, but Narcissus doesn't like the young man back. And now we're going to get a parallel story to the wasting away of Echo to become only a voice in the story of the person for whom she wasted away. So if you just think of the parallels, I mean, it, it, it's, I'm sorry to, to, to insist on this, but, but it's actually what Ovid is insisting on is that you have the story of Echo and Narcissus. Map that story into the story of the young man and Narcissus. And those two stories parallel each other. Echo and Narcissus, young man and Narcissus. Um, and those two parallel stories are stories about parallels. Echo and how he's like Narcissus. Echo, um, Narcissus, excuse me, Narcissus and how he's like Echo. And now the young man and how he's like Echo. 
and the result is that the story of Echo's relation to Narcissus is now going to be paralleled by the story of Narcissus's relation first to the young man whom he ignores but who is like him, and then um, to himself. So what you're getting here is um, story one parallels story two. That is Echo and Narcissus parallels young man and Narcissus. And in story one, Echo parallels Narcissus by repeating him. In story two, what you're going to see, of course, is Narcissus paralleling himself because he sees himself in the mirror of the pool. So that's another parallel. And because he parallels himself, he falls in love with his own reflection. So let's just say it's Narcissus and Narcissus's reflection. And because he falls in love with his own reflection, who does Narcissus parallel in the other story? Echo. So now you have Narcissus paralleling Echo, and this Narcissus paralleling Narcissus' reflection, which is exactly what Narcissus is going to see. I think this is, it's harder to diagram than to understand, but it's worth, it's still worth seeing the diagram um, to see how intricate Ovid's thinking about this is. So, um, now he is going to come to know himself. There was a clear pool of reflecting water, unfrequented by shepherds with their flocks or grazing mountain goats, no bird or beast. Or nor, not even a falling twig stirred its surface. Its presence nourished greenery around it, and the surrounding trees would keep it cool. Worn out and overheated from the chase, here comes the boy attracted to this pool as to its setting and reclines beside it. And as he strives to satisfy one thirst, another is born. So thirst for water and now thirst for love. Drinking, he's overcome by the beauty of the image that he sees. He falls in love with an, Im an immaterial hope, a shadow that he wrongly takes for substance. Transfixed, suspended, like a figure carved from marble, he looks down at his own face. So notice that he's now turning into stone, or at least it's as though he's turning into stone. And notice the brilliance of this description. That is that because he's transfixed, his image doesn't waver. If he weren't transfixed by his own image, he wouldn't become transfixed by it. But it's the fact that he can't move because he's so transfixed that means that the image isn't moving either. Um, and it's as though he turns to marble. He looks down at his own face, stretched out on the ground, stares into his own eyes, and sees a pair of stars worthy of Bacchus, a head of hair that might adorn Apollo. Because, see, he's the headless one. But now he sees himself with his head. Those beardless cheeks, that neck of ivory, the decorative beauty of his face, and the blushing snow of his complexion, he admires all that he's admired for. For it is he that he himself desires all unaware he praises and is praised, seeks and is the one that he is seeking, kindles the flame and is consumed by it. 
So it's all back and forth. How many times in vain he leans to kiss the pool's deceptive surface or to plunge his arms into the water, keen to clasp the neck he glimpses but cannot embrace. And ignorant of what it is he looks at, he burns for what he sees there all the same, aroused by the illusion that deceives him. Why even try to stay this passing fancy? Child, what you seek is nowhere to be found. Your beloved is lost when you avert your eyes. You've all done that, right? Try to see your eyes moving in mirrors. Um, that image of an image without substance arrives with you, and with you it remains, and it will leave when you leave if you can. All right, we, should, we'll, we have to stop here, but the thing to notice is that he does recognize himself eventually. He does realize that it's his own image. Um, and that is what fulfills Tiresias' prophecy. Um, that's something worth thinking about, even writing a paper about, if you need to. Um, but it really is worth thinking hard and thinking through the story of Echo Narcissus. Okay, uh, we will talk about Virgil on Friday. Professor, then, uh, uh, to, to, uh,